Hey, hey everyone, back again. Today we're going to finish up our discussion of Sarah Ahmed's The Promise of Happiness, starting from chapter 3, titled Unhappy Queers. So before jumping into that, if you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram, at theory underscore and underscore philosophy, or on Twitter, which is just my name, David Guigno. If you're listening to this in podcast form, you'll be able to find it on YouTube, where I sometimes release videos, if you're into that at all. If you're listening to this in YouTube, you can find it in podcast form, anywhere where you get podcasts, or there shouldn't be any ads. In fact, there won't be any ads. And if you're doing that, be sure to leave a review. Uh, five stars would be great. And if you're watching it on YouTube, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends. Who knows? They might get a real kick out of this, but they might not. Uh, if you want to help me out monetarily, you can do that via Patreon or PayPal. And that's about it. So yeah, let's jump into it. Uh, starting from here, chapter three, titled Unhappy Queers. So she begins by recounting uh, Vin Parker's Spring Fire, which is the name, which is a book, 19, it released in 1952, that presents a, a gay couple, was, was the, were the main figures within the book. And the publisher, despite the author's want, despite Parker's want, would only allow it to be published if it had an unhappy ending because they couldn't at that time depict gay people as being happy. They had to, because that would be too scandalous for their very sensible, delicate readers. So it had to be censored. It had to be reframed in order to be acceptable to the public. Now, this had a kind of opposite or interesting effect in that it made it possible for gay representation to happen, but it had to happen with a price. That is, queerness, or in this case, the gay couple, could only be depicted if they were depicted as being unhappy, ultimately by having an unhappy ending. And this essentially reveals the complexity, or I guess the complexity, yeah, of queerness and unhappiness and their kind of tenuous connection where queerness is because it refuses to it is the refusal to abide by the dominant script. And this isn't necessarily like deliberate, like it's just the way that people are. It's a refusal to abide by that script. And because that script is what is associated with happiness, therefore happiness is refused to these people. And we see that play out in how this book was censored, reframed so that queerness could only be associated with happiness. So much of the history of queerness, that is it's, in, it's archive, is associated with unhappiness. So take, for example, what is often a kind of response to a child coming out uh, as queer, where the parents will probably try to deter them from thinking that or saying like, oh, uh, if you have homosexual feelings, then you are like, it's just a phase, you'll get over it. Or I just want you to be happy implying that the only way to be happy is to follow the kind of normative framework, the normative heterosexual framework. And this reveals that the parents in this case are in no way actually interested in the child's happiness. They are interested in their child abiding by the dominant script. And of course, ironically, there's no better way to make a queer child unhappy than to uh, make their happiness contingent upon their abiding by that dominant script by saying that what they desire is not actually what they desire. It's not real, like it's just a phase or something like that. And like in the last episode, when I discussed the way that black and brown women are expected to put on this extra form of happiness, so too are queer people, but to a different uh, different extent and to, in, in many cases, a lesser extent, I will even say, because any sign of unhappiness is taken as evidence 
of the failing of that way of life as delivering happiness. So they have to curb that by always being extra happy and extra positive where a gay couple can need uh, couples counseling. A gay couple can need um, or can be unhappy at times and that's totally normal. But whenever that happens, it is seen as evidence of the failing of that, uh, that way of life. Whereas in the case of a hetero dynamic, if there is that failing, it is viewed as a failing on the part of the couple. Where in the case of like divorce, we say it as being a failed marriage, where it is your fault. There is nothing wrong with the institution itself. It is just your fault. And also in the moment that a parent says, I just want you to be happy, that puts such an unrealistic expectation onto any child, be they uh, queer or otherwise, because this it, it kind of makes us hostage, to use a pretty violent term, hostage to happiness, where we are expected that happiness is what we have to always be. And if we aren't always happy, there's something wrong, which of course refuses to acknowledge that unhappiness is totally normal. In fact, it might be the condition upon which happiness is allowed at all. But the thing is, it, it serves a political function to make us happy all the time. Because when we are happy all the time, we it reveals that we have no problem with what we are seeing in our day-to-day -day lives, like injustice, like discrimination, be it racism or sexism or transphobia or any other form of discrimination. It reveals that we should just put our heads down and just keep existing in our daily lives as these happy subjects. And so who is left out? Who is kind of left to pick up the bill or to pay the bill for our happiness? And later on the book, she uses the example of the short story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas by uh, Ursula K. Le Guin. And I'm using it now because I feel like it fits better with this discussion than with her discussion later. Where, for those that are unfamiliar, this is a short story that begins by describing a utopia. This land, this city called Omelas, in which people live the happiest lives. But then at one point in the short story, kind of midway through it, I think, I guess toward the end, I can't really remember when in there, it is revealed that the entire world's happiness, the city's happiness, the propensity for the city to produce newness, to be, to have the kind of uh, rigorous ingenuity that it does, it is all contingent upon the immeasurable suffering of one child in a basement, in this, in this dingy basement where they don't have any food to eat almost, and they are just meant to live the most excruciatingly painful life that you can imagine. And people in the city are at some point in their lives given the opportunity to see this child and they have the choice if they will walk away from Omelas because the lives of everyone there is perfect. The, these lives are beyond reproach. But for this one child, there's immeasurable suffering and if you are okay with that, then you stay in Amalas. If you aren't, you leave. So it asks upon which, or she uses this book to ask, or this story, to ask upon whom is this happiness allowed? Who is excluded when we proffer up happiness? And in this case, for queer couplings, the idea of happiness excludes the possibility for same-sex relations, for queer relations that do not abide by the dominant script. And in fact, these other forms are meant as sites to be repressed, to be oppressed in order to proffer up, in order to 
structure the dominant framework as being the best alternative. Now, of course, in one of the one of the things I really like about Ahmed's work is she she always she problematizes even her own ideas that she puts forward, where she's thinking about this idea of queerness and she draws a distinction. She doesn't just want to paint queerness as being this thing that is always already going to be repressed within the dominant framework. She instead contrasts what she calls happy queers from happily queer, where happy queers are people that might not abide by the dominant framework and how they live their lives, but in every other way will abide by it. So one term that we might be familiar with here is the idea of homonormativity, where you might be a gay couple, but you abide by the dominant script in every single other way. You own the house, you, uh, you might adopt the children or have a surrogate or in any other way that it might happen. You have the car, you have the good job, you have the good salary, you support the war effort. You know, all of these things that make you still a model citizen despite your being queer. Now she contrasts that with the happily queer. And the happily queer are people that do not fit within the dominant framework in nearly any measure, yet are still happy because they've found what makes sense to them. And they are living that life that makes sense to them. And because these people often find happiness in places that are seen as undesirable to the dominant framework, to the dominant um, voices and perspectives, they are viewed as being perverse. They are an aberration. They are depraved. They don't have the right way of engaging with the world. And that propels us here into chapter four, Melancholic Migrants. So she begins this, uh, this paragraph, this chapter, with a quote from Trevor Phillips, who's the chair of the Commission of Equalities and Human Rights in, I think, in Britain, 2006, where this is what he said. Multicultural communities tend to be less trusting and less happy. People, frankly, when there are other pressures, like to live in a comfort zone which is defined by racial sameness. This is, the, this is the chair in 2006 of the Commission of Equalities and Human Rights, saying that people just prefer to be among people with their race, uh, of their own race, which would be wrong to say is not true because we cannot deny the fact that there are these powerful institutions, that there are these histories that make that so. But when we just say it uncritically in these ways, what we are doing is providing a justification, almost like as though it's natural for us to believe that. So in this case, Ahmed, I think, really accurately points out that multiculturalism is, so, is associated with unhappiness, whereas sameness, being among people of the same race, is viewed as happiness. And so therefore, something like immigration or migration is seen as being a producer of unhappiness. And for more on this, uh, her book, the cultural politics of emotion discusses this in great detail, specifically looking at the way the nation comes to be inscribed with a kind of vulnerability, a vulnerability that is exploited by immigrants. So for more on that, you can check out that book. And I've also covered it on this channel if you were interested at all. But I, I digress. So Phillips, this guy who said this messed up quote, says that this problem can be mitigated if people in a multicultural setting found a kind of common interest. And he uses the example of football. So in this case, he was talking about, for those in the North American context, he's talking about what we know to be soccer. 
Now, Ahmed is suspicious about this given the attachment of football with national identity. So what he's really saying is that everyone should just submit to the national identity, where let's say you had in France, you had uh, multi-ethnic communities. What he would be saying here is that people rally around their football team, their, their being France, and that can kind of sneakily inject them into the national framework. So Ahmed traces this back to these imperial to imperialism in which or that was justified by saying that well imperialism is good because what we are doing is bringing happiness to the world we are making people more european which we've associated with being happy so therefore we are going to make people more happy in the same way when they when this guy says people just need to submit to uh, their football team then they will be happy saying submit to the national identity then you will be happy so drawing from Nietzsche, she, she uh, says that because Nietzsche has this passage in which he criticizes English, the uh, English believing that all the world needs to become English for them to be happy. And of course, he was saying that as a German person because uh, of that tension between the two. But still, the, the point um, the point is still very prescient given what would happen or what was happening with imperialism as being a mission to transport, to export happiness to the rest of the world. And this happiness was associated with this idea called civility, right? It was about transmitting civility or assimilating people to the notion of civility, which has these religious implications as well, that is just about importing European values and it imposing them onto other people. But, 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 in proper Ahmedian fashion, she says that the colonial impetus behind doing what they did was also because they believed these people that they were colonizing to be too happy, where they would often look upon these people as being uh, engaged too much in frivolous or superfluous things that weren't uh, that weren't toward the project of real fulfillment or real happiness, but were only satisfying immediate wants. So their project was not about just injecting happiness into these people, but it was about them injecting or adopting the right kind of happiness that goes back to the last episode talking about a kind of con contemplative contemplative uh, approach to happiness or one that is removed from immediate desires and wants. And like the uh, what is expected of brown and black women that we were talking about in the last episode or with queer people, there is an obligation on the part of colonized people to perform their happiness as being like they, they are enjoying what is happening to them. Now, this demands an adoption of what is being imposed upon you, which would essentially signify the death of something else, the death of your history, the death of your culture, the death of your identity. And to better understand this, she puts forward Freud's idea of melancholia, hence the title of the chapter, Melancholic Migrants where melancholia is a state in which you are unable to properly uh, grieve or let go of what you've lost. And so you, are, you retain that thing, which keeps you in a kind of arrested state of a development where you cannot develop any uh, further, which can be opposed to mourning. Mourning is when you ostensibly are able to come to terms with what has happened and move on. So the person that 
is un it refuses maybe or is unable to perform this kind of happiness is constructed as this melancholic migrant who is the person that is unable to shed the loss that they feel for their culture for their identity and to just simply adopt the new way of life where there should certainly like in the case of migration be a grace period be like a period of understanding in which it's a very difficult thing to just shed your culture, shed your identity, if that's really what anyone wants to do, and to assume a new one. Or additionally, people, you know, in adopting a new uh, cultural identity, moving to a new place, may also be experiencing discrimination in ways they hadn't before if they came from their own, uh, you know, from their own the place of their birth, where they probably are among people like themselves, they may not have experienced discrimination in the ways that they would by moving somewhere else. And so if they make a fuss about that, you know, if they put up any kind of resistance to that, they're seen as being these people that are refusing to just get behind the times and to just uh, go with the flow as being melancholic, not able to let go of their past. And so they might be labeled like a terrorist or a threat to national security or national identity. So in order to illustrate this, she talks about films like Bend It Like Beckham and East is East, in which uh, migrant families are depicted without going into too much detail because that would take too long. But what unites them in their plots is their mutual illustration of second-generation immigrant children who are view, or who are kind of illustrated as being victims of their parents' backwards ways. So in these films, what what we what is depicted are parents, first generation uh, immigrants who still cling on to their values, their from their uh, previous nation or or culture that their children are trying to get away from because their children are. There are these certain expectations that they adopt the new standard, the new kind of cultural codes and beliefs. And so they try, they end up distancing themselves from their family and therefore from their communities, from their culture. So these children are viewed not as being melancholic migrants because they're people that are able to get over this, while the parents are seen as existing still in the past as being backwards or unable to get with the times. But as we talked about in the last episode, the happiness that we often associate with certain things doesn't actually come true. In fact, it, it's often doesn't come true. So in the case of these children, what Ahmed questions is whether or not adopting this new, this new kind of cultural uh, way of life is actually going to deliver happiness. And if the price that was paid to get there was worth it because it's often and it, this is depicted in these films and other and then other stories that she mentions that second generation children in this case people who are trying not to be these melancholic migrants want not only to shed their cultural identity in many cases they want to shed their skin in the case of m moving to the quote-unquote western world where whiteness is framed as being the more desirable uh, skin color. But of course, that cannot happen. And so there's always going to be that sense of uh, unaccomplishment or not being able to properly blend in with the dominant cultural attitude, the dominant cultural framework. And so, of course, racism still exists and it still it, it affects these people, even though they do everything they can to fit within that framework. And so the promise of happiness 
wasn't able to deliver in the end, and it actually produced unhappiness and will continue to produce unhappiness precisely because the world they are trying to fit into is one that is continually trying to push them out. And to call attention to that is what she calls to be uh, an affect alien. Like you're someone who's just not properly kind of positioned in relation to the right objects, to the right encounters, to the right way of being. And that propels us here into chapter five titled Happy Futures. Now, as of yet, we haven't really discussed the temporal dimension to happiness. Like we, we position happiness as something that can be thrown to the future. And so we can then maintain it in a, in a kind of fantastical way as we, you know, because it hasn't been attained yet, we can make it out to seem whatever we want. And we often defer its realization so that we can maintain the illusion, the fantasy. But we haven't talked all that much more about it than that. So if happiness is, a, is, is kind of positioned in the past, present, or future, it takes on a different form where when it's located in the past, you then respond to it in a, in a certain way as opposed to when it's seen as being in the present, in the now, versus when it's in the future. Where when it's in the past, it's something that is lost. When it's in the present, it might be something that we have, but something we feel anxious about losing. Whereas when it's in the future, it can be something that can produce happiness in its promise, which can lead to this kind of fa fantasy. And it is this promise that motivates a kind of staying in line, keeping with the kind of normative framework. And so some feminists, specifically queer feminists, have even, you know, in their taking aim at the idea of happiness, have taken aim also at the, the idea of future, futurity, futurity, because the future is often imbued with that kind of um, potential for happiness, which demands people stay in line so that they can attain that thing in the future. Now, rather than completely do away with futurity or unhappiness, or happiness, I should say, Ahmed wants to, of course, question who is excluded from this project and whether or not possible different futures can be opened up that account for these people that have been or continually excluded. And this demands us becoming aware of the present conditions that make the future in the normative sense possible as a site for the realization of more normativity. Like we're just going to stay on the, the straight and narrow to arrive at a point of happiness, which just continues the same framework. So to, to kind of illustrate this, she turns to the work of Marx, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, and their notion of false consciousness in the case of workers. Now, false consciousness is the idea that workers um, are kind of engaged in an illusory form of reality because they think that their lives are meaningful by working the, the long work day. And then even though their work means nothing for them, it just makes profit for someone else. And they do it over and over again. And they have this false way of looking at the world, to put it really simply. So by adopting the norm that is pointed toward this future, we are engaging with a kind of false consciousness. And it is the project of revolutionaries to call attention to that, uh, what is often veiled, the kind of structural forms of oppression that are veiled in the present and that continue us on this, this path. And revolutionaries, feminist killjoys, are the ones that call attention to these systemic forms of oppression that we might otherwise not see. So in order to illustrate this and to complicate the, the problem further, she considers the film, uh, two films really, but I'm just going to elaborate on one, Children of Men and the Island. So Children of Men is a dystopian film in which uh, 
humans can no longer reproduce. So no one's kind of sentenced to death, but the human species does not have a future. The future has been foreclosed because the species is just going to go extinct. But then it is revealed that there is this one pregnant woman and she's the kind of key to humanity's salvation. Because if science can figure out how she is able to reproduce, then they might be able to figure out life again. Now, this is a world, as I've just said, where the future is not guaranteed. So this maintenance of a certain uh, normativity isn't necessarily guaranteed either, and the world falls into chaos. But the film follows not this woman who is, uh, this black woman, I believe, who is the key to humanity's salvation. It follows this white man who is a kind of melancholic figure himself, someone who is, doesn't have motivation to really live his life any longer, who is trying to save this woman because he, he, he realizes that there is meaning to life if the future can be guaranteed. Now, Ahmed, Ahmed's approach to this film is, is very complicated, uh, and I really encourage you to go and read what she writes, but this is what the kind of key thing I take from it, even though she makes many other points. It's that we see the motivation to reinsert the possibility of a future for this man, not just because the opportunity presented itself with this, this pregnant woman who was seemed to have an immaculate conception. There's no like father figure present. It's never revealed who's uh, really there, who, who, who's the father. It's just assumed that there was one. And so this, I, this biblical uh, imagery is, is not lost on Ahmed. But this guy, this main character, sees only the, the reason to keep the world going if it means, and this is never said, of course, but comes down to interpretation, if the dominant way of life, that is this heteronormative way of life, can be the way that the future keeps going. So he assumes a kind of fatherly figure. Like he becomes the father, the symbolic father to this child, and we have this heterosexual dynamic going, and it leads to the promise of the future. At least, spoiler alert, that's how the film ends, without too much of a spoiler. So it's in this way that futurity is attached to the present. The, the future and the promise of happiness is never something that is inextricably or is simply detached from what is now known. There's always some kind of attachment to what is uh, kind of affirmatively constructed as being happiness in the present. So we get other, uh, other kind of dystopian fiction uh, about this, like Brave New World, where happiness is what is absolutely expected of everyone as a move to the to the future, as the promise of the future. Because without happiness, the world and Brave New World would fall apart. Like, it is a world in which people are held hostage by happiness. But for Ahmed, unhappiness is exactly the way to make the possible possible. Because it's not very interesting to just frame the future as being the realization of what is positively constructed in the present. That is just to replicate the same over and over again. Instead, we must turn ourselves to the possibility of newness, to the possibility of possibility itself. And that propels us here into the conclusion titled Happiness, Ethics, Possibility, in which she go talks about more of what we've already discussed, but she makes some other key observations that I'd like to uh, kind of illuminate. So happiness is often constructed as that thing in the future, and it gives us meaning to what we do. So 
For example, uh, we exercise, or some of us may exercise, because we associate the end product of exercise as being happiness. And like I said in the first, in the last episode, when we are pressed on what makes us happy, we arrive at a point in which we just say, well, it's just the way it is, just because. Like, I just, I do this because I, it's just, I like it, and that's it. It's good because I like it, and I like it because it's good. So she draws upon Nietzsche's work again here to discuss the, to perform a kind of genealogy of happiness, where in Nietzsche's The Genealogy of Morals, which I've discussed on this channel if you want to go and listen to that, he talks about the way in which goodness and badness are framed and constructed within a certain uh, socially, social political framework where the aristocrats, the upper classes, were viewed as being good and being associated with, in Ahmed's terms, happiness, whereas the lower classes were associated with a kind of badness, and they experienced what he called chassantiment, which is them saying no to themselves and no to the world because they were embraced or were a part of this, uh, again, another regrettable term, this slave morality, where they were taught and made be made to believe that they were worthless and therefore couldn't experience happiness, whereas the aristocrats could. They could be happy, they could say yes to themselves, and their lives had value. But of course, both of these are illusions for Nietzsche. Like, it's, there's nothing about either that is, that is necessarily true, uh, and there's a lot more to it than that, but in any case, what Ahmed takes from this is the idea that the powerful determine what causes, what will produce happiness, who is allowed happiness. So in that way, we should not just embrace unhappiness because that would be to fall into this slave morality idea that we get out of Nietzsche that will just uh, keep the system going in the same way. Instead, what Ahmed proposes is that we try to expand the category of happiness to both see upon which the people upon which it's predicated, who is excluded to make it possible, but also to allow it, open it up to make the possible itself possible, to make happiness something that can mean more than just in this context that we've spoken about so much already, the marriage, then the nuclear family, the 2.3 kids, the white picket fence, and so on. Which also means that we don't be satisfied with things that upset us, like, for example, racism or injustice. And it is only then that we can positively embrace happiness as being or moving us toward the expansion of happiness to as many people as possible to make it something that is open for everyone and for what people want to do with their lives and not be coerced or not be motivated by repressive institutions to act in a certain way or in a certain proper way. And yeah, that more or less covers it. It's a really good good book. That's, um, <laughs> All of Ahmed's books are quite good. I definitely recommend you read it if you had the the time and you had the money to, to buy it because her books aren't cheap, funnily enough. Uh, but yeah, so if I said anything you disagree with or anything I should have added or something I mis mischaracterized here, I'd love to hear about it. If you like what I did, like, share, subscribe. It would help me out. Leave a comment. Uh, if you're listening to this in podcast form, leave five stars, leave a review. I'd, I'd really like it if you could help me out, but if you don't want to, then that's fine too. And yeah, catch you next time.